actually, every time I sing an old hymn, Daddy, Mom, do you remember Bethany Baptist Church, those hard pews? And she would hold my hand and open that little red, big red hymn book at the time. And uh, every time I sing a hymn, um, it's you and me, Mom, at Bethany Baptist Church. Um, <laughs> so these are really big shoes for me to fill because Debbie is just amazing. And um, so I'm just, I'm just going to jump in here. Um, welcome to Nehemiah. If you, there was... Um, kind of when you walked in, a slideshow kind of going. And I entitled the introduction, If These Walls Could Talk. And we're going to learn about um, the walls of Jerusalem um, in this study. And uh, so we can actually, at the end, we can put the, uh, if I know how to do it, we can put it back on so that they, you can see some of the pictures, because the pictures are, are amazing. So welcome to the study of Nehemiah. Um, I hope you all have a pink folder in front of you. I chose pink. I know it's not a very manly color for Nehemiah, but he wasn't around to confer with, so we just um, we went with pink. It's one of my favorite colors, and it's a women's Bible study. I want to just take a moment just to kind of explain how I teach here. Um, so I've given you a folder. It has some blank paper in it. Um, but it also when it has a syllabus of the study. I have us going for 12 weeks. The study is going to end on November 9th, but I've put an extra date in there, November 16th, which is the week still before Thanksgiving. And um, we can do a brunch if you want. We can meet here and do a review. Um, we can just you know go out to lunch, whatever you want to do. But I thought it's a good idea to put an extra week um, in, especially in Florida with COVID and with hurricanes. Um, it's just a good idea. You have some blank paper in your folder, but also I give like a worksheet or a study guide, so it's kind of like you can follow along. And today it's not much of a study guide, it's just got some scriptures that we're going to um, go through and, and follow, but it is the introduction. And then each week we're going to have a homework assignment, and before you get all panicked, um, it's only going to be for your eyes, and homework is, is optional. But I do kind of challenge you to make it a part of your, um, make it a part of your quiet time routine, because we are going to journal through Nehemiah, and uh, it's going to be awesome. So more on that later. Um, let's see. Another homework assignment, if you accept the challenge, on the inside of your folder, there's a Bible verse. And each of them are different. And there's actually scripture on both sides, and it's just taped on there. So if you would want to check out both of them. But I just challenge you in the next 12 weeks to commit that verse to memory, if, if you would. You know, there's a scripture that tells us, you know, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So just um, kind, of, uh, kind of another challenge. And lastly, of course, no study is complete without a pen. And so we have pink pens, so hopefully there's enough to go around. I just love the Old Testament. So if I get a little overexcited, just kind of do this to me to, to calm me down. Um, and just for the fun of it, I wanted to take a moment to just kind of like in, a, in just a word or a sentence, kind of go around and tell me your favorite Old Testament character. Well, I call him character person or story. And I'll go first. Mine is Jonah. I love how he keeps running from God, but he can never hide from God. So, tag, you're it, Debbie. Um, favorite Old Testament? Mm -hmm. 
One is somebody that sticks out for me is Rahab. Oh. <laughs> and the just a wonderful change in her life when she heard the truth and uh, and she stood up for the men. So I, she's a strong woman. So I like her. Good one, Christy. David, he's a, yeah, her husband's name is David, too, so <laughs> we call him King David at home, too. <laughs> Dear Joe. Do you have a favorite? I'm not. I'm trying to scan. I, the Psalms. I love the Psalms. Okay. It's just easy read. It's yeah. encouraging when I don't want to get into heavy reading. It's funny though. Of all this, of all the places I sit, um, this book page 413 is what I taught my grandchildren oh. through all the. I mean, just that I would get that one. Yep. Whether it be schoolwork or their life, or their choices. So this is not, no untraditional yes. stones. He didn't need the big sword and right. guns and come out with a bang. So I always just land on 
know Amy. I know Amy. You are a woman after God's own heart. You are. <laughs> I've seen you at your worst. I don't think so. She came to Hibiscus House with us and um, helped with that volunteer day. So um, we welcome her. And, um, I love the Old Testament, and I love to hear who your favorites are um, because I love how God has chosen the nation Israel, and he's redeemed it for his own. And every page of God's word from Genesis to Revelation is the unfolding of God's plan of salvation. And I love the old character or the characters of the Old Testament. They just come to life for me. And we see glimpses of their lives and that God uses ordinary, everyday, sinful people for his purposes. Just like me, just like you. And they're given these opportunities to succeed at the tasks that God sets in, in front of them. And many times just like me, and I'm sure I can speak for you as well, we fail. Sometimes the second time, sometimes the third time. But God clearly defines his promises in the pages of scripture, and it's an easy book. I'm going to just give you one of my faults here. It's an easy book to pick out the promises that I like and to try to fit the circumstances that I'm living in at any given time. And then I've been known in the past to kind of push aside the promises that are hard to hear. Um, but God didn't intend for his word to be used that way. The Bible is, and on your little worksheet, I put in a couple things for you to fill in the blank just so that I can, you can make me feel like you're paying attention. Um, the, the Bible is a guidebook, and it's how we follow God's truths that he's outlined for us. It's not outdated. A lot of people think that the Bible is outdated. It has the answer to everything. And it's a book that uses, it's to teach us, to correct us, and to convict us. So teach, correct, and convict. But it's also a history book. 
It's the nation of Israel's history, but it's also our history. If we profess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are grafted into the Jewish faith. And this is where Nehemiah really grabs my attention. Nehemiah is about community, and it's learning together everything that God has for them and us, and it's all rolled into 13 chapters. From Genesis to Revelation, God's word centers around this small piece of land that he has called the promised land that he has chosen for the nation of Israel. It's called Canaan, and Jerusalem is the capital of Canaan. And one of the slides showed that up there, so we'll, we'll pull that around again after um, the study is done. Jerusalem is referred to in scripture as the city of David. It's referred to as Zion. It's referred to as the city of God, the city of truth. And there's no city on earth like it. There are millions of people who pilgrimage to this beautiful city every year. Um, just by show of hands, has anybody ever been to the Holy Land? I am just, it's on my bucket list. I am just, I would love to go. It's the home of three world religions. It's the Jewish faith, the Muslim faith, and Christianity. There's no city on earth with as much intrigue and atmosphere and history. And there's no city, except for Afghanistan right now, but with as much conflict and controversy. The scripture, in scripture it's called the city of God. Because it becomes very clear very quickly that God cho chose Jerusalem. Man did not choose it. God chose it. The word Jerusalem occurs 881 times in the Bible. 667 times in the Old Testament and 144 times in the New Testament. Now, I'm not going to apologize because I'm going to be pulling some scripture from the Old Testament, and I'm hoping that if you so choose and you brought your Bibles, um, you might want to um, find at least some of them with me. Um, but I just want you to get really comfortable in, with the Old Testament, and I want you to know your way around it. Um, a lot of people don't feel comfortable with the Old Testament, but that's my goal for um, this, this study. It's going to kind of be like, um, what do they call them, the, the Baptist sword drills? Yeah. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. Bible club. Bible club. I was never very good at it. I was never good at it, but I always, I always liked it. Um, God refers to himself in no other place on earth. God refers to Jerusalem himself in no other place on earth as my city. And that is found in Isaiah. But the first scripture I want to look up is found in Zechariah. Zechariah is, we'll give ourselves a second to find it, it's the second to the last book of the Old Testament. So it's right before Malachi and right before, two books before Matthew. So let's go to Zechariah 1. Zechariah 1, 14 through 17. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, 
I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For a while I was angry but a little. They furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring lines shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So, I want to turn to 1 Kings, which is about a quarter of the way through the Old Testament. 1 Kings 11.36. And here he's talking to Solomon. And these are on your um, worksheet too. So if you don't get a chance to, to look them up there, you can go back to them. First Kings eleven thirty six. Yet to his son, I will give one tribe that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. So he's talking about a lamp being put in Jerusalem. And God said that he has chosen for himself to put his name there. Jerusalem is foreshadowed some 4,000 years ago when God told Abraham to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Which is, in, which is where Jerusalem stands today. Um, Isaac climbed up that very mountain with the firewood on his back that was going to be used to um, sacrifice him. But God stopped Abraham and provided a ram that was caught in the thicket as a substitute for Isaac's place. And this is a foreshadowing of what God did, his willingness to sacrifice his son Jesus for us on this exact same mountain. God said that all the nations would be blessed through Abraham, and it's because of the descendants of Isaac that the nation Israel is born and the Messiah comes to earth. Jerusalem is also the very hot spot where King Solomon, somebody mentioned Solomon, um, was to build the temple. Let's go to 2 Chronicles 3.1, and it's just a couple books over from Kings. Chronicles 3, 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Okay, so the temple that was God's house, and this is where God was going to live on earth. Until this time, the Israelites had built and carried around um, on the Ark of the Covenant. And um, the Ark was carried around wherever they went. So whenever they broke up camp, they would pick up the Ark. They could not touch the Ark, but there was a specific way in which it needed to be um, carried. But the Israelites kept in the Ark the articles of their faith. They had the Ten Commandments, the tablets from Moses that Moses was given by God. It carried Aaron's staff 
If you recall, Aaron's staff was his walking stick that God had empowered to do all kinds of miracles during the um, plagues of Egypt um, before Pharaoh would um, let um, the people go. And it has some manna. And the manna was the daily provision that God rained down um, every morning uh, for the people so that they would have enough to eat. So the temple, uh, so the temple that Solomon built was very important to the Jewish faith. The Ark of the Covenant was placed inside the temple when it was completed. It was actually placed in the Holy of Holies, and God and the Ark of the Covenant finally had a permanent home, okay? And this took place in Jerusalem. The details into the design of the temple, how it was to be built, um, are found in 1 Chronicles chapter 28. We don't have time to read that, but I really, I mean, it's, it's really awesome if you can have time to go back there this week and just kind of, um, God gives the layout of how it's um, to be built. David wanted to build the temple uh, for God, but God told him, you're a man of war, you're not a man of peace, and my house has to be built by a man of peace, so I'm gonna allow your son to build the temple. So David was a little disappointed, but David gave his son Solomon the instructions on how to build it. Jerusalem is a city where God decided long ago it was going to host the events that would redeem the world. God chose Jerusalem as the place where he had ordained Jesus to die for our sins in order that we could have a personal relationship with him. Jerusalem is the backdrop for the New Testament and actually the entire Bible, but the New Testament as well. And it's the center of all that's recorded um, in the scripture. Nothing happens very far away from this city. Or if it does, it's even under um, the influence of, of Jerusalem. We're told in scripture that God delights in the city of Jerusalem and that he had given specific instructions on how it was to be built, which I just mentioned, um, 1 Chronicles 28. But also, God sets the standard of worship and he sets the standard of how we are to respond to him. And we are to respond in obedience, and we are to respond in um, living a godly life. But, and this is a big but, God was willing to destroy his own temple and the entire city of Jerusalem, bless you, because of Israel's disobedience. And so this tells us that it's not so much the building or even the city, but it's the holiness and the heart attitude of the people that God is always and will always be concerned about. Um, God allowed the city to be destroyed, but he also allowed it to be rebuilt. So let's just go back to Zechariah, Zechariah 2, and we're going to read Zechariah 2. It is two. Okay. We're going to get to Zechariah 12. <laughs> Zechariah 2, 10 through 13, and he calls it his own city. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, or you can replace Zion for Jerusalem. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves in the Lord in that day, 
and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts have sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. So he calls Jerusalem here his special possession in the holy land. So very, very significant um, place um, in scripture. Now let's just move to the New Testament. And I was very excited if you were at church on Sunday. Jeff spoke on Revelation 21. And we're just going to read the first four verses. But this Jerusalem has a significance for the end times as well. And Revelation is the very last book um, of the Bible. And it's actually the second to the last, second to the last chapter that we're going to be reading. 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first earth and the, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So what a beautiful description of what Jerusalem is going to be like in the future. No more tears, no more mourning. Um, and he describes it as his beautiful bride. The border of Jerusalem is surrounded by a wall, okay? And this is where we're going to get into Nehemiah. Um, but along these, this walled city, there's also gates. In Revelation, it tells us that there's going to be 12. 12 is, it, 12 is a significant number in Scripture because of the 12 tribes of Israel. But interestingly enough, the eastern gate, and it's one of the pictures on the slide it's, um, that you see up here, it's closed. And it's now a cemetery. Um, it, an ancient ruins cemetery is, is outside of it. But it faces the Mount of Olives. And there's a lot of recorded things in the New Testament that happened at the Mount of Olives. The main significant thing is, um, well, Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse there where he talks about his body um, uh, being um, destroyed. Um, he tells his disciples that, you know, following him is going to, you know, um, cause a lot of hardship and persecution. But it's where the ascension took place, where after Jesus was raised from the dead, um, 40 days after, he ascended back into um, heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. This gate is the closest gate to the temple. It's the most significant gate uh, for the Muslim faith as well. Uh, they believe that Allah's final judgment and his future resurrection uh, will happen here at this gate. But the interesting thing about it, and the reason I mention it is because almost, not quite, but almost 500 years ago in 1541, it's been permanently sealed. So no one has been able to enter. Okay. The Eastern Gate. And it's sealed to prevent the Messiah from entering. 
And like we know a sealed door is gonna keep God out, right? A heavy stone didn't keep him in the grave. There's not a door that can keep God that can keep God out. But anyways, I say this just to say that, you know, Jerusalem is a spiritual hotspot for religious wars and dissension. It has been throughout all time, and it's prophesied that it will continue to be so. It always ends up in the headlines um, somehow. If you Google um, Jerusalem, there's bad headlines that pop up. Many nations have come against it throughout history, and I'm going to name a slew of them for you, not to impress you, but just to show you that this has been, um, this has been just in all of history. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Byzantines, the Persians, the Arabs, the Crusaders, the Turks, the Jordanians, and the Palestinians. So it's been a war site since the very beginning. Geographically, it was, it is now, but it was really located kind of off the main trade route. So it really had no strategic importance um, to any conquering enemy, so to speak. But the heart of all the battles of Jerusalem are spiritual. When David conquered um, Jerusalem, it was known for a threshing floor. And I don't know if you're familiar with the threshing floor, but it was this huge kind of concrete cement blob, I guess. And what they would do is they would bring their, their crops and kind of hit their crops or smash them or whatever, and it would separate the grain from the chaff, the shaft. So it would, it would separate what was edible and usable, what was good from what was bad. And um, the scriptures, spiritual, spiritual battles in the Bible are referred to sometimes as take it to the threshing floor, which means like separate the good from the evil. And actually the threshing floor is where um, Solomon built uh, the first temple, was right above, right above that. It had a lot of significance. Okay, let's go back to Zechariah 8. And we're going to read 3 through 8. Would somebody else like to read? Okay. Yes, please. Eight. Yes. about after this exile um, some of the people are going to return it was a city that was laid in ruins and he is telling him he's prophesizing that it will again become prosperous and be filled with life 
Um, God declares in the scripture that um, he dwells in the midst of Jerusalem. He has a passion for Jerusalem. The enemy hates where God dwells, okay? So it will always be a place of bloodstain and strife because of this significant spiritual significance. It, it's, well, it's not funny, but it's ironic that even people who don't believe in the one true God, you know, like the, the Muslim faith, um, they believe in portions of it, but not, not, not the Christian faith, not the, the faith of the Bible. They know enough to be afraid of him to try to eradicate where he dwells. So they've overtaken that eastern gate where the temple is because that this is forever home on earth, and they've blocked it off so that you know the Messiah, even though they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they're just going to make sure that if he is, by some chance, he's not going to get in. Um, today, the news of Jerusalem centers around the Palestinian nation and the um, Israel, nation of Israel. They are in constant battle. Uh, for the land, they have been since the, the early 1900s. Biblically, I tried to trace back, and scholars that I read said um, that the, the Palestinians are descendants from the Philistines, so David and Goliath. Okay, Goliath was a Philistine. Um, so the battle is for land. It's interestingly enough, Jerusalem is only 49 square miles, so it's small. It's just a very small um, acre, or very small um, plot of land. Has a population of nearly one million people. So, um, 1948 was very significant. Um, Israel was given statehood, um, and the Arab country, the Palestinians, um, did not like that. So again, um, why is it always a place that is fought after? And I believe this is the last scripture I'm going to have you look up. But we are in Zechariah 12 now. So let's turn there. And we are going to read Zechariah 2 and 3. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord. So God chose Jerusalem, but he made it very alluring. He made people drawn to Jerusalem. And anyone who fights against Jerusalem is going to suffer his judgment in the end. Okay, so he is the only one who is allowed to um, inflict judgment upon his beloved city. We come to David in Psalm 122. I think I put it on your um, worksheet. It's, David prays for the peace of Jerusalem. Because the world centers around this city, he prays for it to be a peaceful city. The whole chapter 62 of Isaiah is Isaiah's prayer for Jerusalem. Jerusalem uh, Isaiah says to continually pray for the city of Zion, continually pray for Jerusalem. And then lastly, King David wrote in Psalm 137, he said, 
May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Okay? So I wanted to give you kind of a background of how important Jerusalem was in the past, but now just kind of piece together um, what we're going to need to understand uh, before we get into studying the wall uh, a little bit better in Nehemiah. The past. The promised land of Canaan that we said was given to the nation of Israel, and Jerusalem was to be the capital. How they landed um, in the land of Canaan was Moses led the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, where they had been slaves for over 400 years. Uh, in one lesson, we're going to talk about how the Israelites landed in Egypt, but for now, we're just going to focus on this little tiny land. So the Israelites are in, um, they're in Canaan, and David is the king, and he comes across this fortress, and it's the city called Jebus, and it's occupied by the Jebubites, and there's just lots of big words in the Old Testament, and I'm going to not pronounce them right half the time, I'm sure. But it's a fortified fort, so it's kind of safe from enemies, but again, it wasn't on the main road, so it's not really that it needs to be walled and secure for armies. It's walled and secured because it's an agricultural place. So it's all this rich land, farmland surrounding it. They had built, the Jebusites had built this amazing water duct system, um, which is how David and his army actually conquered the city because they couldn't get over the walls. And there's some pictures on the slideshow too um, that were um, that showed that. And still today, um, you can see those if you if you step foot in the Holy Land. Um, so I've been told I've never been there. Um, but anyway, so there was a lot of natural springs. So it was just an amazing place. Uh, they had that thrashing floor. So the walls were probably to keep out animals and such, not um, to protect their crops. And uh, it was. Um, yeah, and, and it had the thrashing floor. David captures it in 1004 BC with about 400 men, okay? The area that is in walled or encased in this wall is 11 to 12 square acres. So it's a very small piece of land. Scholars kind of vary on how many people actually settled there once David conquered um, and, and took uh, control of, of Jerusalem. Anywhere between about 1,000 to 2,000, which makes sense. If there were 400 men in his army with all their families and relatives, so about 1,000 to 2,000 people lived on this 11 to 12 um, square acre um, land. In 970 BC, about 30, 35 years later, 38 years later, is when King Solomon builds the temple and he builds it on the threshing floor. Jerusalem has expanded to about 125 acres by then, so they have been doing some construction and some engineering. And it's a population of roughly around 25,000 uh, during King Solomon's day. 365 years later, the Babylonians capture the city under King Nebuchadnezzar. And if you remember King Nebuchadnezzar, he was the king who had Daniel um, thrown into the lion's den. So um, he, he's an interesting character. 
And King Nebuchadnezzar, when he destroys the city, he also dismantles the temple and takes all the gold and all the the art, uh, religious artifacts and breaks them down, melts them, whatever he does, and they're gone. So he just de demolishes um, all of the, the Jewish faith. Takes with him 10,000 men of valor, it says. So when you consider that he's taken 10,000 men, he's also taking their family. There was women, there was children. And the, it was prophesied that they would be um, in exile, they would be in Babylonian, uh, Babylonia for 70 years. And it was prophesied because the people were becoming disobedient and God said he was going to, um, to punish them. It's this cycle of sin, rebellion, repentance. Sin, rebellion, repentance. And we're going to talk about that in one of the lessons um, a little bit more um, in depth. After 70 years, there's a king called King Cyrus of Persia who allows some of the Jews to return. And he is allowing them to, to start building the temple and start building the city. But um, he comes up against some, some other nations who are distressed that the Israelites are rebuilding this city. So he quickly cuts them off at the knees because he is told, King Cyrus is told, that um, they are going to rebel and revolt against him. And um, any king that was told that, you know, backed down and said, no, it's my rule. King Cyrus allowed the first wave of the Israelites to return to Jerusalem. There were three waves, um, and we're going to talk about those a little bit, but we're going to mainly be focusing on the third wave. The third wave was led by Nehemiah. And from the first wave to the third wave, it's about a 112-year um, time frame. So it was definitely not after 70 years everybody returned. There's a ton more of history, and I know that I'm not doing this justice, um, but I just want to move forward just real quick and just give you a couple bullet points of, you know, why Jerusalem is such an important city for our faith. And scripture tells us that Jesus was dedicated in the temple um, to God, um, his father. He was about a month old when Mary and Joseph um, brought him to the temple. It was actually another temple. It was not the temple that Solomon had built because that temple had been destroyed once again. But King Herod, um, who was actually, it's very interesting, he was a non-Jewish king, um, but he, he, was in, um, he was in control, and he had commissioned the temple to be built, and it was beautiful. So I love how God uses a non-Jewish person to build his permanent home on earth in his holy city, um, and it was spectacular. This is the temple where uh, Jesus, when he was 12 years old and he was celebrating the um, feasts of Passover, uh, remember his parents left um, because everybody had to come into the city and then they came out. Uh, he's, he's not found, he's nowhere. And so his parents go running and looking for him and they find him in the temple and he is pouring over the scriptures and he's explaining it to the rabbis and he's explaining it to the teachers there. Um, this is the same temple where Jesus clears the money changers out of the temple. They're, they're overcharging for the sacrifices for the feast days, um, and Jesus is angry, and he, he clears the money changers. This is a city where Jesus rides in on the donkey on the triumphant um, Palm Sunday, and this is the same uh, temple where he stands accused before the Sanhedrin, which is kind of like the Supreme Court of the Jewish faith. 
and um, he is found guilty and he is crucified. Jesus loves Jerusalem. He knew that he was going to die there. He weeps at one point for the city. He sits and he looks over the city and he just weeps for it because he loves the people there. He loves the city. He tells his disciples um, that the temple is going to be destroyed, which they don't want to hear because the temple has been destroyed a few times and had to be rebuilt. And it's, you know, it's, it's always just, it's horrible. It's, it brings shame upon them when their temple is, has been torn down. But he wasn't talking about the actual building of the temple in Jerusalem. He was talking about his body. He was saying that, you know, he was going to be um, crucified, he was going to die, and then he was going to be resurrected. So you see that there's so much history, and, and I know I'm missing big gaps in it, but, and it's just, Jerusalem is so seeped in prophecy that Nehemiah comes along, and God uses him to restore this holy city and to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. Nehemiah is the last book chronologically in the Old Testament. So even though it's not the last book the way it's organized for us, it's the last chronologically year-wise that's going to happen before um, the New Testament opens. And there's a 400-year period of silence, but anyways. So why was it so important to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem? And I put on your outline that broken walls reveal a defeated people. Okay. So the Jews with Nehemiah that had returned uh, after some hundred years of Jerusalem being in ruins, and actually Jerusalem had been in ruins for a lot longer than that, the rebuilding was a way to show the other nations that God was still with them, that he, they were still his chosen people. The theme for the entire book of Nehemiah is found in Nehemiah 1, 9, and 10. And it says, if you return to me and obey my commandments, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. So throughout the study, we are going to keep coming back to um, this promise. The destruction of Jerusalem's walls had left its people exposed to danger, and it was also a shaming, uh, a shaming quality to it. The walls would have provided people protection. It would have been dignity. Um, they had suffered the, the judgment of their God. Uh, people would have known that because of the collapsed walls and just the, the devastation in the city. So being able to restore the city and come back to the promised land, come back to this beloved city, um, was just huge uh, for these people. And just a side note, we're going to talk about it a little bit in, in probably the first lesson, I believe. Nehemiah was born in exile. He had never stepped foot in Jerusalem. So it was about a little over 800 miles uh, from where he was in the king's palace in Babylonia, Persia. So he had never stepped foot in, um, in Jerusalem. So why did I choose Nehemiah? So I'm going to get personal for a second. Um, I chose Nehemiah for a couple of reasons. Um, personally, a few years ago, um, I was really going through a real struggle. Um, and the verse Nehemiah 8.10 just kept coming at me hard. Um, the joy of the Lord is my strength. 
And also what kept coming after me was the story, if you've been in Sunday school, um, about the walls of Jericho. The walls of Jericho keep tumbling, come crumbling down. And the walls of Jericho were when, right before the people were to enter the promised land, they came to this city, Jericho, and it was a fortress. And um, we have Rahab. <laughs> um, she, she helped them. Um, they have to walk around this city, they're told, for seven days. And the first six days, they are to be just march, be quiet. And on the seventh day, they are not to use weapons of war, but they are to use musical instruments. And they are to make loud, clanging noises and trumpets, and the walls come tumbling down. So, like I said before, I am kind of good at picking out what I like and discarding the rest. Um, so I thought, well, this situation I've got, um, yeah, I just want these walls to crumble. So I started praying for God to crumble these walls. And I really liked the whole seven-day thing. I was like, you know, this will be great. You know, I, I, I can be quiet. <laughs> Thank you. I can be quiet for six days, and I can make a lot of noise. Um, my mom knows. I can make a lot of noise when I have to. I'm normally a pretty quiet person, but, um, you know. So I could see the promise on the other side. So the sixth day came, the seventh day came, and no walls came tumbling down. And needless to say, I was really confused, and I searched the scripture for more promises to fit my circumstance. And when that didn't work, I got more discouraged, but every time I got discouraged, this verse kept popping into my head, or I would see it on a bumper sticker, I would see it on a poster, I would see it wherever. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And I was all over the place in my mind and spiritually, and I knew then I had lost my joy. And, um, but God knew all along exactly what I needed, and he never gave in to my whims, and he heard my cries, and he let me do my little temper tantrums, and then when I calmed down, he would give me the next thing that I needed. He would never show me too much, and, uh, it was not the way I had envisioned it. It was not the way I had planned, but he did not in seven days have the walls come tumbling down. Instead, it literally seven years to the day, um, he told me that we were going to rebuild the walls. And um, we were gonna rebuild the existing walls. And it was harder work and not the result that I was praying for well, really, I didn't know what I was praying for. I just wanted the struggle to end. I don't know if you've been in a struggle where you just want the pain to stop. It doesn't matter how or what God uses. You just want it to stop. And um, so, again, it just kept coming to my attention, Nehemiah 8.10. It's really, I could only focus on, you know, like one verse. And uh, so it got, he got my attention, and I said, well, I like Nehemiah 8.10. Maybe I'll read the whole chapter. So I read chapter 8. And I was like, wow, I really like that chapter. So I looked at Nehemiah and I said, wow, it's only 13 chapters. I'll read the whole book. And I've been there ever since, and it's been a little over a year. It's an incredible book. I have learned so much. I'm overwhelmed at how much I've learned from it, and I'm still learning from it. And I just want to give it all to you. And I know that in 12 weeks, I'm not going to be able to. But, um, you know, we're going to talk about who Nehemiah is throughout this study. But I want to end today with a visual. I'm, I'm a visual person. I know Debbie is too, so. Um, 
So this is kind of, it's, it's a heavy visual of our syllabus. And I probably won't be able to carry this around each week. I had my little mom come and help me, and she's like, do we have to bring these in every week? Like, probably not. Nehemiah is a builder. Um, but, what he, but builders need tools, okay? So what we're going to learn from Nehemiah, and you can kind of follow along, we're going to start here, is the first thing that Nehemiah needs to be a builder is he needs to have the heart of a servant, okay? He had faith in God long before God called him to rebuild the wall. It was through his devotion to God that Nehemiah could trust God's plan and provision for his life. And really, that was from his parents because, like I said, he had never stepped foot in Jerusalem. He was 800 miles away. It's not like he went there for spring break or Christmas vacation. Um, so God really had a calling on his life, and he really had, had placed his parents. It, it, and we're going to talk about a, another lesson, um, how important um, the legacy is that you, leave, um, that you leave your children. The second building block that he needed before he could start building was he needed patience and preparation. He was a man of action and a man of prayer, and he used these two things simultaneously. And we're going to see how that worked out for him. So he wasn't just a man of prayer. He prayed and acted. And he wasn't just a man who raced to the, to the front first and then prayed. He did it simultaneously. The third building block before he could start building the wall was he knows how to organize and get things done. And he compromised or put together a dream team. Okay? And Nehemiah is a great leader, and he knows how to delegate. You know, there's so often times where, especially with my children, because that's really the only thing I thought I had control over, but I don't. Um, <laughs> but I thought I could delegate things to my kids, and it doesn't, doesn't work. And, you know, now my grandkids, at least they're listening to me. They're still at that age where they listen. The fourth building block uh, of the wall was Nehemiah. We're going to see how he dealt with his enemies. Opposition is going to be forever. I think it's this one right here. Opposition is going to be forever in front of him. And we're going to see how he faces the challenges when the enemy throws at him and how he stands steadfast in his calling. And we're going to learn how we can stand steadfast as well. The fifth is the building block of discernment. And we talked about, you know, um, Solomon being a wise man. Nehemiah was very wise as well. He needs wisdom to complete this project, and distractions are popping up all the time. It's not just enemies. It's even within his own community. Um, my family distracts me all the time, too. So it's kind of like, you know, how he deals with these distractions. And after discernment, we have joy. And this is my... This is, this is my brick. So this is found in Nehemiah 8.10. And we're going to find that Nehemiah gives the people permission to be joyful. They can act on their joy. And he's going to remind them of what their joy truly is and that their joy is their strength. But he's going to show them that they can be joyful. And it's very cool for the people because they haven't had a lot to be joyful about in many years. Next, the seventh is going to be, let's 
intimacy. The seventh is he teaches us the importance of confession and repentance. Okay? There's a difference. We're going to learn the difference between confession and the difference between repentance. They're both equally important, but you need them to work together. And that's when we're going to look at the, um, the cycle of the Israelites, the sin, the rebellion, the, the repentance, um, that cycle. We're going to see how seriously God deals with sin in the Israelites' lives and how seriously he deals with sin in our own life. And then we're going to come to number eight, which is counting the cost. We're going to count the cost. We're going to learn what it means to count the cost. There's a cost that goes with obedience, okay? And we're going to see what that looks like. We're going to learn about the covenantal God and how that applies to us today. A covenant is a promise. And anytime God makes a covenant or a promise to his people, um, he cannot break it. And it's just a really cool, the covenant is just an awesome, an awesome thing. Nine, nine, where are you, nine? Nine is about, where? Yeah, okay. Nine, thank you. Nine is about leaving a legacy. We're going to talk about leaving a legacy. We're going to talk about where we've come from, and we're going to talk about what you leave behind. Okay? So it's one of my, it's one of my, favorite, um, it's one of my favorite lessons. Actually, they're all my favorite. I don't know. Um, the tenth one is we're going to talk about praise. Nehemiah is going to remind us just how big God is. And when you see the big picture of how big God is, all you can do is praise. And he is going to remind us to keep looking for the big picture and really understand who God truly is. And it's so important in our walk as well. And then the final one is going to be passion. We're going to find our passion. We're going to see how Nehemiah finds his passion for godly living. We all fill our lives with things that we're passionate about, which is awesome. You know, we're passionate about family. We're passionate about careers, grandchildren, um, cooking, gardening, um, horses, whatever. Um, but we're going to see how Nehemiah reacts after 12 years. Um, his passion is threatened. He sees that his passion is threatened in the people. So we're going to see um, how, that, how he has a passion. So my prayer is that these bricks can kind of be a metaphor um, where we can kind of repair the broken places in our lives as well, okay? And kind of use the same tools that Nehemiah did. So our first journal entry, and that's, and you can either use just the plain paper in your book um, or the little journal that um, I have in your folder. But just sometime throughout the week, if you just want to meditate on this scripture, it's a Proverbs, and it says, a person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls, okay? So just kind of meditate on that. And then our question, what we can kind of think about and ponder, Which Proverbs is that? Uh, 2528. And the question that we're going to be dealing with is, if the walls of your life could talk, what would they say? And then ask God to give you a desire to look closely at the walls of your own life and how you might begin to rebuild any broken places. 
And then look at the syllabus that I put at the front of your um, folder and just kind of figure, kind of read through the, which we've talked about here, but read through the titles of the chapters and kind of see which one maybe grabs your attention, which one maybe you're most excited about. And then as we journal through,